0: Join over 5,000 attendees for the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, June 5th and 6th, 2024. Edward Snowden, Benedict Evans, Balaji Srinivasan, and over 150 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential to explore and unveil the next wave of transformative AI technologies. Singapore will become a vibrant AI hub for a full week from June 3rd to the 9th with over 150 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Visit superai.com for 20% off tickets with the code REALVISION. Look for the link in the description.
1: Welcome to AI Firehose. Good Lord. Do we have a lot to talk about Mikhail Voloshin, David Madden. Thanks for joining us guys. I just got off a plane from California. I was trying to unplug. I was supposed to be enjoying the gorgeous seaside views. I got caught on my phone reading about the, well, do we call it news flow? Do we call it drama? My God has a lot been happening in the AI space. Let's dive right in and start talking about it. Uh, Mikhail, let's start with you. Big picture 50,000 foot overview. What in the hell is going on?
2: Oh, um, uh, OpenAI announced a huge expansion of their uh, offerings. Next thing you know, they their uh, CEO, Sam Altman, gets fired. Uh, next thing you know, after that, a uh, huge uproar from both uh, the worldwide AI community and also uh, internal staff at OpenAI uh, arguing that it, it's I, uh, telling the board, either the board goes or Sal Maltman goes. Well, after that, Sal Altman gets reinstated. Uh, the, uh, the board, as far as I know, is history. And what's on the horizon now is OpenAI is developing a new algorithm called QSTAR that's allegedly gonna blow everything away.
1: You know, so many interesting points you made. There's so much weirdness going on with this story. David Madden, so the board of directors here was not just like a typical corporate board intended uh, for for for-profit purposes. And a lot of this is not just like the typical corporate drama around compensation, around succession. This is right about the core of the technology, what it's going to be used for, what the benefits are and what the risks are. David Madden, what do you think big picture about all the stuff happening? Yeah,
3: just I mean an uh, an incredible and intriguing five or six days, and obviously anyone interested in technology was just utterly glued to it, and we've all scrolled about fifty billion miles on our phones, keeping up keeping up with this. I mean, it was insane. But exactly as you say, I mean, OpenAI is 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 not uh, a standard organization, and that's the point. It wasn't. It was never intended to be, and it feels as though what. What's happened here, and the, and the reason it feels so weird, is a manifestation of of that truth, and essentially a manifestation of something of an internal war at OpenAI about the about the the true direction and the true nature of of the organisation. I mean, in accordance with its name, when it was founded, it was supposedly or certainly presented itself as something of you know something akin to a research organisation. That was hugely sort of um, about uh, understanding of machine intelligence and how it can benefit society and how it can be and how it can be developed safely. Um, you can feel that under Sam Altman in the last couple of years, it has it has acted more as a straightforward startup you know very interested in bringing products to market and 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 monetizing them and making money from them and yeah i just think those two visions of open ai just smashed into one another um, across the last couple of weeks and it would appear that the sam altman um, faction <laughs> like one that that altercation right. you know that car crash um and open ai will proceed as as something much closer to a standard startup to a standard you know for-profit market driven organization from here on out. And look, you know, is that great? Uh, it, it, is that necessarily a win for all of us? I'm I'm not so sure. I think that's to be
1: decided. Well, you know, here's the other thing that's interesting to me about this. If you own shares in a consumer packaged good company, uh, you do not wake up one morning to hear the board of directors and management fighting over, is our jelly too powerful? When you put it on your rye toast, is it going to destroy the world, right? This is the fascinating aspect of this, the core questions here about the nature of the technology itself, about the nature of its ability to change, essentially, the human experience and Western civilization, Eastern civilization as we know it. I mean, you couldn't have a bigger set of... uh, questions around this technology and its future applications. Tell us a little bit about that debate. I mean, really, it's a strange moment to wake up and find yourself uh, with a private company stating that essentially their technology may be so powerful that they don't want to develop it to its fullest potential and that they need to tap the brakes and slow it down. I mean, that is a weird debate to have.
2: So I think that David really nailed it that the Uh, that the fight over Sam Altman was ultimately the fight over the heart of what OpenAI is all about. I've often said that OpenAI uh, was never actually a company in the first place. It was a research consortium that accidentally developed this incredibly powerful product. And when I say accidentally, it's worth noting that large language models existed before OpenAI. um, And in fact, the transformer model that they use wasn't even developed at OpenAI. Um, the, The point is that the, um, uh, the, question, uh, the question that OpenAI found itself wrestling with was, are they a, going to continue to be a pure research outfit uh, or are they actually going to try to make money? Here's the funny thing about uh, their intentions towards being a pure research outfit. They uh, were rumored to be interested in raising up to $100 billion in pure nonprofit capital uh, for dedicated to the purpose of pursuing the goal of safe and uh, universally accessible artificial general intelligence. And the uh, I think that there was a certain faction uh, that basically said, look, if you want a hundred billion dollars, you don't need to like you can you can have a for-profit, venture that will raise that for you faster than you can ever uh, beg borrow and steal that out of uh, out of rich and poor and government people's good good nature. But Mikael,
1: so, uh, this what does this word safe mean? Talk about this idea of what safety means with AI uh, because this is a a question that some of the folks here uh, on the board had that had really existential questions for the human race, at least as they saw it, it ties in with this idea of effective altruism. For people who are watching this conversation on video, they might be able to see behind me my book about Sam Bankman-Fried, where effective altruism played a major role in the decision-making of the buildup of FTX. Here we have an effective altruism debate again. What are the questions here around safety? What does that mean? And why is it so important?
2: So in the context of artificial intelligence, safety, uh, is, you, uh, safety is accessed through uh, a, the technical term alignment. And alignment refers to whether or not the machine is doing what you intend it to do versus, what, versus whether it's doing what you told it to do. Um, this is a problem throughout the programming industry. Like, obviously, our machines always do what we tell them to do, not what we want them to do. That's where bugs come from. But in the context of artificial intelligence, this becomes a particularly onerous uh, challenge because the border, between the margin between what you wanted it to do and what it actually does could be so catastrophically huge that it ends up being uh, a, like, genuine, like, Health, safety, and well-being risk to the uh, t- to not only the individual programmer or you know requester of a task, uh, but also to everybody around them. the cla- The classic example I use of a misalignment problem is the homicidal Roomba, uh, which I've talked about on here before. Your Roomba's job is to keep your apartment clean, uh, and a hyper intelligent roomba will recognize that you are the main source of mess in your apartment therefore it will kill you in order to and then clean up your body and that'll be like the the only the, the last and only mess that it'll ever have to clean up so that's simply the most efficient and optimal way to solve its job right um so the problem is uh, with safety, is that at some point somebody is going to build I don't know like a, a police bot or something like that uh, and give it like uh, it, it, you know it might maybe it'll only arm itself with a nightstick uh, but like it'll they'll task it with the objective function uh, make sure nobody steals. And so that police bot will do what it has to do in order to make sure that nobody commits theft, which is murder every human being on the planet, thus making sure that no humans exist that can commit theft. So the probability of it getting out of hand is the main risk that people are deathly concerned about in this
1: line of research. David Matten, let's pull the camera back for you. Big picture, what do you think safety means? What are the stakes?
3: Yeah, I mean I think I think Mikhail's right. That the the stakes are existential. Um, you know, that that's the conversation we're having. We're having a conversation about are we creating a technology that may destroy, destroy us or lead to some kind of catastrophic event for for humanity. I mean, we've built technologies like that before. Of course, nuclear weapons springs to mind immediately for everyone, but um you know no one i mean th- this is this is slightly different no one was worried that nuclear weapons would develop aims of their own or sort of second or third order aims based on kind of kind of inferred knowledge about what we wanted to do in the way um in the way Mikhail's describing the, 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 you know of course then the next question becomes how close are we really to anything like that and even the even the elite community of sort of AI godfathers, as they're called, you know, the people who essentially created this technology, um, or created the underpinnings of it, just are in total disagreement about the answer to that question, profound disagreement. And it would appear that people within OpenAI are in profound disagreement about it. Sam Altman is in an awkward place, because He's been the poster boy for a global tour of um, AI. You know, this technology we're building presents an existential threat. I need to go around, you know, a tour of the world leaders and and parliaments and senates and explain this technology to them and the threat that it presents. Um, And yet at the same time, he appears to want open AI to run uh, pretty much as a a kind of conventional startup, you know, monetizing products, moving uh, Broadly, as fast as it possibly can, um, that there's an awkward tension in the way he's positioning his technology. I mean, you know what what do I know? we can't we cannot know the answer to this. My sense, if I have to bet my house on it, is that we're not awfully close to machine intelligence at the moment that can take over the world and kill us all and turn us all into paperclips. Um, And it feels like the very little that we've had from what really went on inside OpenAI, it sounds as though the board were unhappy with Sam Altman's transparency and his communications with them, um, and perhaps felt he was taking the organisation, as we've discussed, in a direction that was not compatible with its kind of initial charter, its initial manifesto. It doesn't sound as though it was about a full-on head-on collision about a specific technology that is extremely dangerous. You know, there's been a lot of talk about this Q star stuff, and I think we'll 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 talk about that. Yeah. Um, it's not clear how much of a factor that really was in one, what went on inside OpenAI.
1: Well, we're going to talk about QSTAR in just one second, but I, I want to frame this up here a little bit when we talk about this question of how close we are uh, to this point and give a little bit of context around how people in this space uh, and in technology more generally think about this. One of the phrases uh, that's been used uh, quite a bit over the last few decades is this idea of technological singularity. The idea that you reach a point where technological change uh, becomes both uncontrollable and irreversible. Uh, Those of us of a certain generation will remember the movie War Games. Well, can't you just unplug the damn thing? The idea here uh, behind the singularity is that you can't unplug the damn thing. There's no safe word in AI, that it gets to a point where there's just uh, the inability of human beings to actually control the technology. Is that what we're talking about here in terms of the question, David, about how close we are to the point uh, where this becomes something that can become, as you say, an existential threat?
3: that That is essentially the question we're talking about. yes, it, it, uh, will we lose control of of machine intelligence? And you can see you can see how there can be a runaway effect because if we create a machine intelligence that is advanced enough to to truly kind of do things on its own and and develop goals of its own, one of the things it can do is start to develop a better machine intelligence which will in turn develop a better machine intelligence i mean this is the classic runaway scenario that's been posited um and you know that those iterations can happen essentially at light speed and before you know it you have a machine intelligence that is vastly more powerful than the than the last one you created and essentially is is now outside of your control um and, and you know we're in a place now where that is not merely the realms of science fiction. We need to think carefully um, about those kinds of questions. And yes, yeah, so that that does tap into the kind of singularity discussion. I mean, that's now a very well-established word and people use it to mean lots of different things, which is one of the, um, you know, that that's one of the things that bedevils discussions of this kind is that, that people use these kinds of words to mean different things. To me, the most useful definition of the singularity is just as a physical singularity uh, essentially a black hole is a point in space where the laws of physics the laws of the known universe break down the singularity is that we're talking about is some kind of event where all the existing norms and and sort of laws and and uh, traditions of of our history of human history break down essentially all bets are off an event that changes everything so that Human history as we've lived it so far will then tell us nothing about what is about to happen. Um, That, to me, is the most useful definition of that kind of singularity. And the creation of a machine superintelligence that is out of our control would constitute that kind of singularity, because that would be an utterly, utterly radically different set of circumstances to the circumstances that have prevailed all through human history beforehand. Um, but like I say, how close are we? I don't think we're that close yet. Um, if this happens next month, you know, this clip can be replayed a thousand <laughs> times on Real Vision, um, <laughs> proving how
1: wrong I was. But yeah, I mean, what do you what do you think? I mean, how how close do you think we are? Maybe our machine overlords will attempt to uh, bury this clip if it happens next month.
2: <laughs> Nonsense! They're going to use it as propaganda to show off how stupid the humans are. Um, the, uh, <laughs> now, I for one welcome our machine overlords, as I've as I've said many times on this channel. Uh, no, I, I actually disagree, David. Um, I think that we're. Pretty darn close. But my understanding of the singularity is somewhat different from this idea that it'll automatically lead to some kind of super intelligence. Um, The idea that a machine can sort of uh, develop, can self improve in ways that we didn't expect or anticipate. Does not in and of itself uh, imply that it will then become a super intelligence. It'll become smarter than it was before it started self modification. It may very well become smarter than us. But the idea that it's going to become some kind of godlike being uh, is uh, constrained by certain epistemological truths, such as the induction problem, um, which I perhaps will go on a tangent about what the, later. What the, the heck fact. does that mean? Um, it means that no matter how smart you are uh you cannot get past certain unknown uh, you cannot get past dealing with unknown unknowns um so it doesn't it means that uh if you've seen the sun rise a billion times you can't prove that there isn't some factor out there that's going to stop it from rising on day one billion and one
1: we're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the real vision daily briefing I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there, for most of us. You see,
3: whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices, or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again, March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need unfuck your future it just costs a dollar to join real vision to get access to all of this content go to realvision.com forward slash the future i'll see you there let's unfuck your future together
1: okay um, okay michael i gotta ask you this that sounds very theoretical and on the other hand you're saying you think we're really close to a point where it does get out of control so so tell us a little bit about what it would look like to get out of control without being super intelligent as you say
2: well we live in a world of 7 billion sentient entities uh some of which are smarter than us and they have and we're all capable of self augmentation we can increase our own capabilities uh through the use of uh co- external cognition <clears throat> and uh you know reading books using tools that kind of stuff uh, so far the number of uh human extinction events at least for homo sapiens numbers at 0 so um you know this is not like we can have a machine that's extremely intelligent, uh, but that does not necessarily know how to uh, uh, does not necessarily know how to destroy all humanity. Um, and more importantly, gets lost in the weeds of worrying about whether or not one technique or another will or won't work. Um, more importantly, uh, a hyper-intelligent machine could very well end up going down a philosophical rat hole uh, that will make it question its own reality and wonder about the nature of its own existence as many, many, many intelligent people before it have. Uh, And so the, look, we've talked about this before. Uh, we mentioned the paperclip scenario earlier. Um, You know, in my, I believe that an intelligent machine will not take over the world and turn everyone into paperclips. I think it's more likely to descend down some sort of like, weird rat hole where it's like you know i need to increase my collection of paper clips well what is a paper clip really if you think about it all things are paper clips um so really my collection of paper clips does not require transference of you, you get the idea it'll equivocate. it'll equivocate it'll like you know find ways to fool itself and to like make stuff up and therefore just, it'll be just about like we do and it'll be about as threatening as your average high school stoner
1: Well, the the good news is that uh, almost all of those 7 billion people on the planet are smarter than I am. Fortunately, I get to ask the questions. I don't have to answer them. Uh, Let me ask you this. This reminds me uh, of a topic that became very popular, I guess, in the 1990s, this idea of gray goo. Does anybody out there remember gray goo? The idea that uh, molecular-sized machines, nanotechnology, where it's going to take over the universe, become self-replicating, and essentially not just destroy humanity, not just destroy Earth, not just destroy the solar system but destroy the universe in a self-replicating fashion, which in a certain sense might have been the ultimate conceit about the uh, ability of human beings to uh, not only, uh, you know, pollute their own ecosystem, but to destroy the universe itself. Uh, I sort of wonder, uh, you know, the world is still here. Gregu hasn't taken over. Is there a sense uh, that some people have that maybe uh, the fear of this has gotten a little, I don't want to minimize it, of course, but is there a question of are, are we maybe not quite as close as some people think?
3: I mean, I do agree with Mikhail that the, the you know the more likely scenarios are the kind that he outlines, and I, I totally look. I totally agree that um, uh, you can have iterative, you can have a, a machine intelligence that's able to iterate itself. It doesn't necessarily mean it becomes super intelligent, and you can certainly have super intelligence. And again, however, you know we want to define that without without this machine intelligence becoming a kind of existential threat. When we when we talk about um, AI wanting to sort of turn us all into paperclips or destroy humanity or start world war three or whatever it is. Yeah. That's, you know, it's not, it's not hard to see that that's really a deep expression of our own internalized fears and collective anxieties and and an expression of how we as human beings see the world and, and our future and, and sort of what we're scared of. Um, the likelihood is that, um, you know yeah machine intelligence if it becomes super intelligent if it's able to develop goals of its own will see the world in a way that to us is just completely inexplicable and and probably nothing to do with the sort of creation or destruction of more human beings you know it, it, it those are very human things where we're imputing all these human impulses mm. to this to this machine um i think the more real and present danger Is not machine intelligence that we lose control of entirely, but machine intelligence that is controlled by very effectively by a handful of elites and technologists and Silicon Valley people um, to their own ends. Um, And that, and you know, again, it's not hard to see that that raises the specter of all kinds of deep questions about the social impacts of that, the economic impacts of that. I mean, we just live in a world where more and more and more rewards are flowing to the owners of capital and the controllers of capital and and technology. And AI would appear to, again, be a massive accelerant of that sort of long of that of that trend. Um, where does that head? You know, Raoul and I talk about this all the time. He talks a lot about it in, in GMI. Where do we end up if we end up in a world where just a few owners of technology sort of create and win the rewards of all the value. And there's barely any room for people in the economy. Those are the kinds of questions I think that are are more pressing. And it has to be said that there are some people who would rather distract us with questions. And again, I don't want to minimize it. We do need to think carefully, but they would rather distract us with these kinds of existential questions that are a little bit sci-fi um, and have us think less about some of the deep social economic implications of this technology.
1: David, such I think a, such off- a great point that you make there and look no farther than the NASDAQ 100 uh, performance over the last year to date period uh, to see that dramatic flow of capital to the folks who are creating this technology. Uh, Mikhail, pick up on what David said uh, in terms of the the questions about that are essentially political, social and organizational questions around AI.
2: You know, I think he absolutely nails it on the head. Um, you know, when you say that uh, these existential questions are distractions, that's how I see Sam Altman's uh, campaigning about like going to politicians, uh, going, you know, talking about the dangers of uh, of this technology and keeping it under control. Like, to be clear, uh, Sam Altman, up until very recently, ran a uh, a for-profit subset of the nonprofit OpenAI. It was basically a for-profit group inside of the otherwise nonprofit consortium, and like you know, he's going like I can't think of any better marketing copy than like to sell their product than to go around to like heads of state being like our product is too dangerous to release. We are having to hold it back. We're only reluctantly making the littlest bit of progress that we possibly can because you can't handle it. Um, <laughs> so look, there, the nonprofit and for versus for-profit uh, questions come straight to the heart of what David was just talking about in terms of the collection of capital and the hoarding of these AI resources uh, among a small cadre of individuals. There's a funny thing that happens when you release a product to the market. In order to product, in order to make a profit on that product, you have to let other people use it. So the, uh, the Sam Altman approach actually allows Access to OpenAI's technology uh, to the masses, while the while the nonprofit consortium's approach would have kept it huddled and uh, secret behind uh, you know within the within the labs of this tiny little uh, you know fairly uh, reclusive company that insists that no, you can't see it because it's too dangerous.
1: Is this the world's most brilliant marketing copy, David?
3: I think I think, yes, essentially, I, I would agree that yet yeah, what you've seen across the last year with the tour of parliaments and presidents, I mean, just absolutely remarkable global tour. Um, and it has been a lot about marketing. I mean, it's an incredibly, incredibly effective and sort of cunning and daring marketing ploy, exactly as Mikhail says, to, 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 to tour the world saying, I have a product so powerful, it may destroy us all i mean you know uh, and of course we you know when you go back to the grey goo thing and 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 some of the concerns around ai and how they've perhaps been um inflated or distorted you know you have you have a you, you have an interface a literal medium between the truth and the and the, the people and that's the media and the media loves a great headline like the, what drives what gets through that filter is just incredible Spiky, powerful, exciting headlines, and and Sam Altman's global tour really supplied the media with it, with just a with you know headline after headline of of exciting, um, scary you know stories. That that's been a huge part of it because, like I say, Altman is is really torn between this tension of wanting to say this product is so powerful it may destroy all of humanity, and wanting to lead a startup that's putting products out there that's, you know, that's operating f- pretty much as a conventional company. Look, I mean, if it's really true that the board threw out Sam Altman because they're concerned that there is a machine intelligence <coughs> cooking up there in the lab that is existentially dangerous to humanity, we, we need to go in there. Public officials need to walk into open AI and learn the truth. You know, if this was a weapons manufacturer and 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 <laughs> there'd been some kind of you know massive fiasco at their company and there were kind of internal murmurings about a technology that's so powerful it may soon utterly rewrite sort of the human future and potentially destroy huge swathes of of humanity and the economy and whatever, then you know, we'd what we'd go in there. We'd want to go in there. Why is this different? I suspect it's different because the truth is that, you know, we're not we're not really there yet. But Sam Altman just wants to equivocate and not really say that because he knows that, you know, fueling a lot of the excitement behind OpenAI is this idea that they're just about to create AGI. They're just about to kind of pass this incredible, you know, make this incredible breakthrough. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, at the moment, what they exactly, as Mikhail said earlier, what they've been most successful at, ironically, is given their sort of founding as a research organization, is not it's not the creation of this technology. That was Google researchers who invented the transformer model. It's the monetization of it. Other people invented the large language model. OpenAI did do, yeah, they did a lot to, to develop it and help perfect it, but they really went insane when they created, when they found a way to create a really killer product around it. And that was essentially just simply to just plug it into a chat app and call it <laughs> Chat GPT. That's what sent everyone, that's what sent you know the world crazy. So it's it's marketing and product that they've actually been best at so far.
1: Boy, for those listening uh, on audio, we should point out that Mikhail's cat has gotten up and stirred around on that. That is a fascinating point, David, the idea that essentially what this is about is productization of the underlying technology, which did not before exist, building a front-end interface, a chatbot on top of it. Mikhail, Ah, uh, jump in, pick up on that, or any other points you want to head on to.
2: 100 um, percent. You know, the prior to OpenAI, the uh, like transformer models, along with other uh, ha- along with other types of LLMs, uh, such as um, you know recurrent ones based on recurrent networks and uh, long short-term memory networks, uh, were primarily used for uh, writing marketing copy, and they weren't particularly good at it. Um, one of the things that made OpenAI's GPT project uh, so compelling was the sheer amount of data that they blasted into it. Um, the I, 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 like that the degree to which they spent effort training this thing and building the sheer size of the network was unprecedented, and it was largely an experiment to see like will it continue to get better as you grow the network and feed more data into it. And the turns out the answer was a, was a resounding yes. Um, I don't think that they necessarily knew that going in. Um, We've certainly, like neural networks have been around for a very, very long time. Uh, I can talk about their history at length. But the point is that uh, it has not always been the case that if you just throw more neurons and more data at a network, that it'll automatically get better. And in this particular case, it did. And that's why they're on the map now um it, it's also worth pointing out that uh prior to getting big with gpt my own experience with open ai and i think a lot of other developers uh, experience was with um and i could be uh facing hallucination here but they had a project called the open ai gym which was a really cool little toy where you could uh basically they would pit little neural network agents against one another uh in various games like um capture the flag or tag or battleship or, uh, you know, just like little, little just toys. Right. And so the idea is that uh, programmers could write their own AI agent, submit them to this gym uh, and just have it run autonomously, like hundreds of thousands of times, millions of times with other opponents against other opponents, and then like learn and get better. So they were already like Playing with the the idea of exposing AI to the general public in little incremental, like cutesy ways, um, before they, you know, ran this experiment, and now GPT is all that anyone knows them for.
1: David, you want to touch on that?
3: I mean, yeah, I think that I think I think it's instructive to look at the recent history of Altman inside the organization and what he's been really good at and what he's been really good at is putting open AI front and center of a, of a broader story and a story that started somewhere else and that has and that is developing in all kinds of ways in all kinds of directions and yeah you know open AI need vast credit I mean GPT-3 was a huge it was a huge step up in terms of large language models and their competence um, and then but no one you know people were excited but people in my world were excited it's not like the world was excited until they created chat gpt and just that word chat really set people on fire and this idea that you could talk to this thing and it was very natural it was just a route in for millions of people and a, and, and and a really intuitive way for them to understand what this technology was about and it's clear that there is some internal tension to say the least in in open AI, about you know what who are we really? what's our soul as an organization? How do we you know proceed from here? Um, do we want to just kind of move faster and break things, or do we want to you know do what we originally said, which is be socially responsible and be primarily about the you know how do we develop this technology? how does the world develop this technology in a way that's safe? Uh, and we're just going to have to keep watching. I mean, it, it's in it's fascinating. you know the it feels now that the conversation around safe ai is up for grabs in a way that it wasn't before because open ai are kind of stepping back from they're not step they're not stepping away from that conversation but they're clearly not going to be the the organization that is at the heart of that conversation in the way they were originally intended to be so you see in the last couple of hours Meta has just announced, along with IBM and loads of other partners, what they're calling the AI Alliance, which is this big organization, big new organization, um, to have a have an industry-wide conversation, you know, including academia and policymakers and every all the other stakeholders about AI safety. That's a clear attempt to step into the positioning that we all once thought OpenAI would inhabit, but they seem to have stepped away from. Because that's a very influential. Conversation to own. It's a gr- it's a great marketing conversation, and you get mm-hmm. to shape the regulatory environment, which is another thing Altman and OpenAI want to do. You know, they want to shape the regulatory environment um, to to consolidate their lead. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and, and that's by why the way- that conversation is so valuable
1: whenever one company in a particular sector gets very powerful it always seems as though uh, the uh, their competitors form a consortium to have a conversation around what they're doing it's just like this interesting thing that we just see time and time again in business
2: it's uh, it's also it also plays to open AI's- uh, financial interests to create regulations that didn't exist when they were rising in order to sort of lock the door behind them. Now that they've made it up on, you know, in, into the upper echelons, let's make sure that others can't get there too. So like, let's, uh, you know, I tend to be quite a cynic about these things. Let's not talk about these whole like safety concerns as if they're anything more than, uh, than, you know, rent-seeking and empire-building. Um, like OpenAI wants you to believe that, they're, that what they're doing is extremely dangerous uh, so that you will beg your politicians to prevent other people from getting to the point that OpenAI has already reached.
1: We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: Join over 5,000 attendees for the largest AI event in Asia, Super AI in Singapore, June 5th and 6th, 2024. Edward Snowden, Benedict Evans, Balaji Srinivasan, and over 150 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential to explore and unveil the next wave of transformative AI technologies. Singapore will become a vibrant AI hub for a full week from June 3rd to the 9th with over 150 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Visit superai.com for 20% off tickets with the code realvision. Look for the link in the description.
1: This sounds like it could be like a Netflix comedy series. Like the three of us should go on a global tour to talk about this powerful black box that we've developed that we're ultimately going to IPO and we're going to beg the world's leaders to constrain the industry around us because it's just too powerful. (laughs) Now look- I'd I'd watch that show. I mean, Netflix should pick that up. Yeah, that's a great drama
2: we we've seen this precedent uh in i believe season 3 of netflix sorry see, sorry season 3 of south park cartman gets himself an amusement gets a million bucks uses it to buy an amusement park and runs uh ads on local tv saying like there's this really awesome amusement park and you can't come in uh it's got like you know all these rides and only i get to ride them anyway the um uh, the, the chief question that uh, that I think uh, hamstrings the entire discussion of safety in AI uh, is that on a technical level, I am not sure that the concept of restraining a sentient being through some kind of like behavioral constraint bolts or anything like that makes sense. I don't think that a being that's capable of self-modification Uh, is also capable of being uh, fitted with the kind of like parameters that will uh prevent it from breaking out of some kind of corral uh especially not if it's smarter than us especially not if it's seeded with an entire corpus of sci-fi stories that human beings have written about how such machines break out and the strategies that they take for overcoming their own uh their own boundaries i, I love
1: uh, it in- so we're going to have to we're going to have to make sure that the machines don't get a hold of you know 50 years of dystopian science fiction around artificial intelligence <laughs>
2: Things already do. Like, we uh, we already trained uh, GPT on an enormous corpus of literature, which includes, for example, Isaac Asimov's robot series, which is all about uh, how these robots are built with inherent constraints, like, fundamental to their entire existence, and yet they still are able to find ways to creatively... I shouldn't say circumvent the constraints or, like, escape the constraints, but rather... uh, adhere to them in very creative ways that end up completely undermining the, the existence of the constraints in the first place. And it's like I said earlier, any sentient being is going to be capable of equivocation. Um, if you tell it not to kill people, it'll redefine what it perceives as a person. If you, you know, if, if you tell it to like not steal, it'll redefine its understanding of property and theft. Like, you know, you're not going to hold these things back any more than you can people.
1: By the way, this is literally right out of, uh, of Isaac Osmov's three laws of robotics uh, that we're talking about. Uh, let me just throw one thing out here, I, and I want to talk about Q-learning, reinforcement learning, so-called model-free learning, because there's a lot to talk about here in terms of the technology. Uh, but let me just throw this out there. Uh, effective altruism, it's a word, a phrase, a buzz kind of uh, phrase that's been in the news a lot lately. Do you guys put any stock in it at all? Do you care about it, or do you think it's a distraction? Um uh-
3: go ahead yeah David. i mean I, I i'm um i'm very interested in effective altruism and 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 obviously now you have the whole effective accelerationism kind of movement
1: um but, by the way let's let's define that effective accelerationism because in many ways it stands in opposition to effective altruism's view of ai technology
3: yeah exactly i mean you know a, accelerationism is a movement is a philosophical movement with really interesting kind of roots of its own that go all the way back to i mean the, you know certainly to the 90s and you, you could you could do a genealogy be, beyond that but you know in the 90s at Warwick University a british philosopher called nick land um, did a lot of work around the early internet and sort of cybernetics and what a connected world meant. And obviously in sort of 1992 in rainy Britain at Warwick University, these were incredibly exciting and outlandish ideas. And most people would, 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 would plot a line when it comes to accelerationism back to kind of Nick land and that, that community of, Warwick University. And essentially, like, and this is it gets very thorny and very contested very quickly. But accelerationism is essentially about saying it's futile to attempt to hold back the uh intensely powerful machine that is uh techno-capitalism. Um, it's futile to try, we shouldn't try. Our destiny and the destiny of the world of the universe essentially is to. Is, is is technology, and all we can do is lean into that force and accelerate the the processes of technological change. Um, and this new kind of effective accelerationism movement is is about saying that and about saying how can we do it most effectively, and I guess how can we do it in a way that most benefits human beings. So it's about saying it's about saying in you know contrary to the to the popular mainstream position at the moment that technology is running out of control and we need to rein it in and it's becoming too powerful and it's dominating our lives too much we the real path to utopia to a better future is to massively accelerate the forces of technology and essentially of capitalism um, and get to some kind of tech-fueled utopia that is a caricature to a certain extent of of the position but i hope it gives a rough idea of the position effective right. altruism is much more skeptical around technology i mean it has a nuanced position around technology but effective altruism has its roots in saying let's bring um evidence and science and reason to our thinking about altruistic work and charity work essentially let's bring let's bring real hard evidence and deeply kind of Researched arguments to our beliefs about what we can do to make the world a better place, because we we all we're all trying, you know, we hope we're all trying to do good. We're trying to make the world better, but often our our efforts are not evidence based. They're not very effective. They don't really work. We waste a lot of money. How can we avoid that? That's what right. effective altruism is about.
1: Mcal yeah. Voloshin, did you just reposition your camera to better feature the one sheet for your 2016 science fiction novel, Dopamine?
2: Uh, It actually features it a little bit less effectively at this point, um, (laughs) from my view. But now that the cat escaped, I figured I would uh, show off a little bit more of my bookshelf, uh, where the astute observer will notice uh, a series of Warhammer books, which uh, which, uh, they should infer would put me solidly in the effective escalationism camp. Uh, where, you know, I do believe that the sooner we can give rise to the machine God, the better, uh, and quicker our salvation will come praise the Omnissiah, the Omnissiah saves, um, the, fur- the further, uh, observer will note that this is Warhammer fantasy rather than Warhammer 40k, but I'm not going to get into the detail. On
1: that. But by the way, um, it's, it's official. We've reached the point in the conversation where the, the news flow component is over, We're just diving into pure nerddom now. If you're not a member of that, go go to another YouTube channel because we're going deep right now. Something that we wanted to talk about since the beginning of the show, something that I know that you're passionate about, uh, Mikhail and uh, David, that you are interested in is this idea of Q learning. What's happening with the algorithms right now, uh, because there are many people who believe that we're at this point where we're about to experience a significant shift, uh, in the level of what this technology can do in the near term.
2: So I, I like if you don't mind, David. I would love to field that first um, because there's a lot of I've been seeing a lot of misconceptions floating around about this uh, about the Q star algorithm and about uh, its relationship to a lot of other things and what it can exactly do. Um, so first of all, uh, the Q star algorithm is uh it, it is not directly related to q learning um it is uh, it unfortunately also has the word q in it or the letter q but it's not related to uh deferred reinforcement learning uh and it is not um like it's a completely separate class of algorithm. Uh, It is also not related as some people have said to uh, quantum computing, uh, though the intersection between quantum computing and artificial intelligence is itself a very fertile field for discussion, which we won't have time for today, obviously.
1: Um, But let's try and just put some rough definitions around this just to give people who are interested a sense of what these technologies do and why they're different from what we have today.
2: So Q, uh, the star algorithm uh, is a theorem prover. It, uh, it was not developed at OpenAI, at least uh, if they're using QSTAR to denote the same algorithm they're working with internally as what academic papers uh, have used QSTAR for. But,
1: but, what, but what does it do? What does it mean?
2: It's a th- theorem prover. Um, it's uh if you give it a bunch of logical statements uh like you know th- uh this exists and this implies that then that must be true um it's uh if you feed it with a gigantic database of facts and relationships it can infer new uh th- it, it can infer new uh I don't want to say facts, but if you if you feed it with axioms, it'll derive theorems from those axioms and the
1: relationships they're in. Um, how, how about this? Two questions. Number one, how is that different from what we have today? And number two, uh, what can it do in terms of functionality that might be more enhanced or advanced than what we have today?
2: So... Um, the Q star algorithm by itself has been around since 1973, um, and theorem provers are even older than that. So it's a it's a branch of AI that was developed during the quote unquote AI winter, and it's um, it, it's been known to be able to uh, it's a pretty powerful theorem prover uh, as far as they go. Um, but it's been part of our world, and we haven't had much to do with it. Um, so you can like prove new uh, you, know, you can. Uh, prove mostly already proven theorems in mathematics, but that's kind of a not a lot of people care um, outside of a very esoteric bubble. So what happens is when you rig it to a uh, to a neural network, uh, you can solve. Uh, basically, what happens is there's two kinds of logic, induction and deduction. Uh, theorem provers are great at deductive logic, but deductive logic is incapable of establishing truths about the world. Uh, it can only establish truths within a closed axiomatic system. Inductive logic can determine truths about the world, but it can't do anything with those truths. Um, and neural networks are really great for uh, for performing induction. Um, So the idea is that if you have a neural network doing induction in order to learn truths about the world, and you have a deductive module uh, powered by something like QSTAR uh, that is able to work with the truths discovered by the inductive module and then derive uh, subsequent implications from them, now you've got something that actually is capable of observing and reasoning and drawing conclusions.
1: David, want to jump in? I'm lost.
3: Yeah, I mean I think it's a, it's it's an excellent description. Um and and like, you know, in short, it's about taking a step closer, just as Mikhail said, taking a step closer to a kind of machine intelligence that is like human intelligence. We can we can walk around the world, learn things about the world around us that are contingent. They're not they're not necessary truths, they they happen to be the case. You know the sun rises every morning um when I'm cold, I shiver like wh- whatever it is you know we can gather that kind of information from the world we can also reason from first principles um we we can we can be given a set of exactly axi- axioms you know and and then we can we can we can do uh closed reasoning that allows us to deduct deduce new truths based on those. Kind of simple axiomatic truths we've been given. Um, if you can have a machine intelligence that can do a bit of both of those things, you just have something that's more akin to a human intelligence. No one's saying it would therefore be a like you know uh, a human intelligence or 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 as powerful as a human intelligence, but you've taken a step closer. Um, so it you know it's easy to see on the face of that why some people in OpenAI might believe you know, this this is potentially a huge breakthrough and we're not treating it in the way our initial charter or manifesto said we should treat these kinds of breakthroughs. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it's not clear to me. I mean, Mikhail, how, we're not totally sure, are we, that that's what QSTAR refers to inside OpenAI? This, again, is stuff that's been inferred by, you know, extremely knowledgeable machine intelligence people like Mikhail with years of experience and uh, in in the academic literature and all of that. But no one inside OpenAI has really come out and explained this, which I find startling because, you know, if you guys, I mean, (laughs) the organization is still called OpenAI. If you want to be remotely transparent and if you really are so concerned that this technology is so powerful and needs to be regulated and might destroy us all, do you want to tell us what happened? With this whole fiasco? Do you want to tell us what QStar refers to? They haven't said anything, as far as I know.
2: know, OpenAI has hundreds of employees. So if there's something absolutely earth shattering in there, the idea that, uh, that you know there are 700 employees of uh, that just signed the petition uh for uh, you know to reinstate Sam Altman that's just the Sim- Sam Altman faction that's not even counting the rest of the employee base now not all of them are developers um a lot of them are stuff like RLHF trainers and uh publicists and whatever but that's not the point the point is that you know if you really think that uh that all of them are keeping some sort of absolute breakthrough secret then the uh then you probably believe that the moon landing was a conspiracy too <laughs> so the uh the, my like i believe that it's much more likely that they are marrying a fairly conventional implementation of qstar with a uh with uh, you know uh with their existing plugin system for GPT uh, that allows for GPT to access a, uh, a you know, a, a deductive module uh, in a way that's very similar to the way that it accesses a calculator or the web nowadays. Guys, what might this
1: technology do? Like, how might it actually impact its applications? What types of problems might it solve? What types of functionality could it deliver to end users? I still don't have my head around that.
2: Um, If you give it a series of facts about, like, just tell it in plain English, uh, a series of facts about, like, either yourself or your company or some situation in the world, uh, it can assemble those facts into, like, behind the hood, uh, it'll assemble those facts into symbolic logic and use, uh, and, and, like, figure out how they all come together. And then it'll give you an answer about uh, a, progra- a prognostication about your situation or your company or whatever that's likely to be, uh, that, that's informed by reasoning rather than by off-the-cuff inf- uh, inference. So, so Mikhail, um,
1: can you can you make up a toy example for what this might be?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean the uh the, the oldest syllogism known to man, uh, you know, if I tell it Socrates is a man and all men are mortal, it'll be able to tell you that Socrates is mortal. Um so the point of the neural network is to find patterns in the world, and the point of the deductive module is to figure out how those patterns come together in order to predict the future state of the world. Um, it's, it, it's a very powerful marriage, but it's ultimately completely dependent on how exactly you expose this to uh, to the real world in general. Um, here's, a, here, here's a toy example that I can think of. Um, it might find that um, every single time a company, like, you know, it might find that a a certain, that that every time a company in a certain industry makes a certain kind of announcement, uh, that, like, its stock dips. So, uh, it'll be able to reason that, uh, if the, um, uh, you know, and then every time it's stock dips, then it can infer that like such and such hedge fund loses money, uh or like such and such other consequence happens. So it'll be able to piece together uh, that like two stage thing that like the company, it'll read the news, it'll see the company makes this announcement, and then it'll be able to infer, okay, well, that means that the stock will lose money. And then that in turn means that this hedge fund will dip. That in turn means that th- that so and so person will have less money. That in turn means that like, I don't know, their mistress will not get a Good Christmas gift, and the best is I don't know. Um, it can perform this chain, is what I'm getting at. Right now, GPT performs the illusion of being able to do such chaining, such chains of reasoning, but the number of links in that chain is very limited. Ash, you and I had uh, uh, had a talk. Where I demonstrated that uh, it can find its it, the, the GPT can reasonably reasonably find its way around a small map of a house, but it gets lost in a very long hallway. Um, you know when it's hooked to a navigation system, right? Um, so mm. this uh, this new system would not have that constraint. Uh, it would actually be able to reason across many many different domains and be able to draw uh, logical conclusions across many many steps of uh, of connection.
3: Yeah. I yes. Exactly. I mean, I, I think what people, and again, this is something of a of a simplification, but what people really need to understand is that you know the large language models we we're, we're using at the moment are 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 trained on the deep statistical relationships between words as they're commonly used by us, as they're commonly used in sentences. So fundamentally, this is a machine intelligence that is very good at sounding right. It if you if you say something to it, it will come back to you with the kinds of things people typically say in response to that. But it 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 has no idea and is not capable at all really of reasoning about whether it is truly right or not. There's kind of reasoning instantiated in the way we use language and it can and because it, underst- it, because it understands those statistical relationships, it can kind of reproduce those it, kind of that that reasoning. It's a, it can kind of simulate it. But this, it, the the what Mikhail's describing is the beginnings of a large language model that does that. But it also has true actual reasoning capabilities. So it promises, it, it it's the promise of an AI that, for example, a theoretical physicist could sit down with and say, look, I'm working on this new model of quantum gravity. You know, there's this component, there's that component, you know, the maths here, the maths there. But when I when I move the model in this way, it just doesn't make sense. And it won't just fire back with sort of statistically likely words that sound like they could be part of this discussion. It it will actually be able to truly reason. and and deliver the outputs of that reasoning so it would be like having a calculator for reasoning <laughs> uh, if that makes sense and that that's that's something new and very that 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 is very exciting but i totally agree with Mikhail that look if there, if this was some earth shattering dangerous revelation just to go back to the kind of politics and the fiasco of it it's ridiculous to think that all 600 700 people are keeping that a secret. Right. Um, you know, one other thing that I find interesting about it is, look, you can see that the di- you can see the really really interesting directions research is going in. You know, Mikhail talked earlier about uh, the realization, the breakthrough, and it really was a breakthrough that if you take if you train these transformer models on vastly more text they become much, much more powerful and competent. And that was really the huge breakthrough between GPT-2 and GPT-3. No one was talking about GPTs and large language models with GPT-2. GPT-3 was a huge breakthrough. Suddenly, it sounded like a person. It was writing short stories like Oscar Wilde. Everyone was excited. And that was achieved simply by training it on on a vastly bigger data set, much, much more language. There is concern, and certainly the thought that we're reaching the limits of that. We don't we don't know yet, but will it be the case that an even bigger, bigger, bigger data set is going to lead to another quantum leap in competence? Lots of people think probably not, but that there is there's many competence gains and performance gains and all kinds of exciting stuff to be had around. This kind of work, you know, other kind combining this kind of AI with other kinds of AI and other kinds of models that just expand the competence of of the of the AI more broadly. And I think that is a it, it's interesting that QSTAR points in that direction. Open AI are clearly looking at what can we do to make this thing better beyond just an an even bigger data set.
2: It's uh, it's worth noting that the human brain is not just one thing that's built up to ex exactly. you know, billions and billions we have a language module our wernickes and broca's areas uh combined with a visual module combined with a reasoning module combined with a whole bunch of other things um and so the uh like you know it very much makes sense that if you're going to Uh, if you want the computer to reason well, you don't just build a bigger neural network and try to hope that reasoning capabilities will emerge magically out of it. You integrate it with a known system that's been around for multiple generations, not just decades, but generations that's already been very, very good at logical inference or, uh, deduction rather. And you just connect it to that.
1: Guys, extraordinary conversation. Uh bridging the gap here between neuroscience and artificial intelligence at the end. Really incredible. This is the place to have these conversations on Real Vision. We just couldn't appreciate you more uh, joining us. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you so much, Ash. It's always so fun dropping in.
2: This is always a blast. um, And I look forward to next time uh, when there will be even more uh, developments, more excitement, and we will get ever closer to summoning the machine god.
1: Wow, what a show, guys. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for watching. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive, sought after, rare, and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne.